Definitively Speaking is a definitive healthcare podcast series recorded and produced in Framingham, Massachusetts. To learn more about healthcare commercial intelligence, please visit us at definitivehc.com. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Definitively Speaking, a podcast where we have data-driven conversations on the current state of healthcare. I'm Justin Steinman, Chief Marketing Officer at Definitive Healthcare, and your host for this podcast. Today, we have a special afterwards episode of Definitively Speaking. We haven't done one of these in a while, but Pam had so much to say in that last episode that we wanted to do a deeper dive here. So I'm joined here today by my friend and co-host, Todd Bellamere, SVP of Strategic Solutions here at Definitive Healthcare, and by Robert Gerbel, our VP of Global Life Science Strategy. Robert's a new voice for our podcast, but he's a big thought leader and a regular on the speaking and publishing circuit. Most recently, Robert's been doing a bit of a deep dive into M&A in the biopharma industry, so I thought he'd be a perfect person to join Todd and me for this afterwards episode. Todd, great as always to have you with me. Nice to see you as well. Yes, we're all in the studio here today. Robert, let's dive right in. What struck you most about Pam's comments in that last episode? Well, it was a it was a deep conversation that you had, but what struck me the most was the point of view that came from Pam, who is in the life sciences, but outside of the life sciences. And she spoke, you know, very directly and frequently around the value of collaboration, the value of partnerships and the innovation that can come from them. What small pharma can learn from big pharma, how we can partner with academia to really drive innovation forward. What struck me was she kept saying a lot about underutilization of academia. How did you interpret that? Well, I I think that pharma doesn't know how to really partner effectively. I think that they've got concerns and questions about, um, you know, patent exclusivity and and intellectual content and capital. And there's an opportunity there, but it's waters that I don't think that they've tread very deeply into in the past. So how could they? I think that they just have to be more open. They have to be more open. They have to use some of the strategies that they've always applied when they thought about building partnerships, but use it in a way that aligns their scientific mission to that of an academic institution or a group of academics. I think one of the real interesting things that she said was how some of the time it takes to get these deals done, that academia could actually uh, have a a more of a a play there as well. And and that kind of made me think, you know, when you think about niche contracts where you're trying to build those partnerships, relationships, that all gets put on paper. And, you know, I think during the podcast, they talked about there's lawyers on staff and they're going to be doing this work. But sometimes the the type of relationship they're working on can be so niche that the lawyer actually has to be a niche lawyer too. And so maybe that is an opportunity going forward for academia and pharma to actually have specific people that specialize in these types. And I'm sure they do. I mean, not saying that they don't do that and it's kind of a no brainer, but I certainly think that there is a, you know, we talk about how there is lots of new jobs coming out for this type of, of work. On the flip side, to facilitate that work, there's lots of jobs there that could specialize in that. And that, that's that's really that's an eye-opening statement. I would have never thought of that. And I think having that level of specialty that can safely bring a pharma company and an academic institution together as rapidly as possible, there's a there is a, a downstream profit. There's a downstream value to doing that. And having that level of specialization, I think that certainly would would speed these partnerships. What do you think of the relationship, though, or the mission of the university? A university exists first and foremost to educate, correct? Right. So how do they balance that mission to educate with, frankly, the pharma who's like mission to make money? 
you know, I like to take I like to take that mission statement with with less of a you know black and white view. I do think pharma has the mission to drive patient outcomes, drive innovation and care, drive science forward. That's what we've always done. And I think you can find a very aligned spot between academia, discovery, new science, new technology, and how pharma can apply that specifically to patient care and patient outcomes. I think that there's a natural fit there. I, I think too, though, as you get into you know that the the dichotomy of what their missions might be. So academia, you know, we all know that that is their main mission to educate. But to educate and to have some of the technology needed to help facilitate innovation, it costs money, right? And so these types of engagements, partnerships, what what have you, will should be able to drive them towards better technology to then have better education opportunities. Absolutely. And I think, you know, at, at the heart of all of this, pharma has to continue to strive for trust. You know, there's an inherent mistrust of what's happening to pharma. So to your point, make money. That's how people perceive the pharma industry. And when you look at at all of these smaller biopharm companies and biotech companies that are emerging across the landscape, you know, they're there to drive science. And I think they have the opportunity to help drive trust and, and drive partnerships because inherently if we are trusting in a relationship, it's long term and it, it will continue to bear fruit over that long term. I think that's really interesting, Robert. And, you know, we talk about, you know, I did say that the pharma is to make money. And you would think even like we're all sitting here today vaccinated, yay, like COVID vaccines. And yet, you know, the shareholders are punishing the stock price because they're not selling enough of it. And I think Moderna is now suing Pfizer and BioNTech and like, wait a second, hey, let's let's take a step back and like we're kind of saving people's lives here. But it got lost in the swirl of commercialization and profit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are companies out there and I think Moderna was one of them that that didn't generate any profit off of off of their vaccine, whereas Pfizer, you know, they they didn't take any government money for it. Um, And and what's happening with Moderna is they had made, you know, kind of an agreement going into this that they wouldn't they wouldn't be concerned with any infringement on their patents. But now that we're past that, they do have right to their own intellectual property and, and they should be partnering with Pfizer or partnering with other organizations as these R&D functions are, are creating other vaccines based on this platform. That's innovation. Does Big Pharma have a PR problem? Oh, I think they've always had a <laughs> PR problem. I mean, come on. I, I remember all of my time in pharma. While it was it was marvelous and I learned a lot, I think that we were always running away from you know some interesting behaviors. I think that you had mentioned uh, the partnerships with academia. It's almost a give to get, right? So yeah. if, you, if you see more pharma companies become getting more trust by partnering with institutions to drive forward innovation and, and new either technology procedures or, or medicines, then maybe that's a way to take the edge off some of that PR. But, you know, you're right. There's always going to be a PR problem with spending money or, or having to pay so much money just to, you know, treat everybody with a certain yeah and i think if pharma recognizes the pr problem they certainly have the machine behind them to address it you know you look at somebody like a novartis and and they brought one of the earliest car t therapies to the market that therapy can only be delivered through about 32 institutions across the country they're all academic institutions so there is an established relationship and a, an established pattern there where they spent time developing co-developing training and really understanding where that patient population would receive, you know, the benefit from from this therapy. So there is an analog for this. 
So for our listeners out there, what is a CAR-T therapy, by the way? CAR-T therapy is a, it's a novel therapy where essentially your, your T cells are extracted from your bone marrow. They're then sent on to Novartis in this example where they're processed, and then they're retransplanted back into the patient to cure their cancer. Wow. It's, it's, it's really, it's groundbreaking. And, and you've seen a proliferation of CAR-T therapies coming from other big pharma companies and, and biotech companies out there. So this, this innovation which is truly innovative, could cure cancer in our lifetime. And I think that's, that's a sign of hope and that's a sign of um, partnership with pharma and academia and, and academics in general to develop these new and novel therapies. You, you've mentioned a number of times the big and the small pharma companies. What are the obligations that the big companies have to the small ones and the small ones have to the big ones? You know, on paper, I don't know that there's any obligation. Right. You know, let's go back to the beginning. There's a competitive landscape out there. But if you, if you think about the way that they could partner, and Pam certainly covered this in a number of her answers, you know, Big Pharma is sophisticated. They have process. They understand how to fail fast. They understand how to execute a trial well. Are there ways that big and small pharma can partner together where small pharma may have the innovation, but Big Pharma has the capacity and they have the ability to commercialize something as rapidly as possible and get it into the hands of physicians and ultimately into patients? I mean, I remember when when I was still in pharma, this is a big pharma example, but, you know, we recognized, you know, at the organization I worked with, we recognized where our gaps were. We went and looked for a partner that could fill our, fill our gaps. So it's not that this behavior hasn't happened in the past. It was certainly much more commercially focused, but I think the same can be applied from a, a, an innovation and a discovery perspective. How did you find those partners? <laughs> what are you looking for? What was the process like? Yeah, it was it was arduous. It was a real dance. I mean, it was a real dance to 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 look at. You looked at the pluses and minuses. I mean, when we ultimately landed on our partner, we knew what we were giving up, but we also knew what we were getting. Oftentimes, it's done similar to what you described, Todd, through an attorney, and they found someone who could, you know, kind of bridge our organizations to bring the right outcomes to bear. Ultimately, the partnership that we were I was involved in was incredibly successful. There were pain points, but there were also celebrations that we had along the way. And how did you define success? Like you said, you said we had to give stuff up. So what did you give up? What did you get? And what made it successful? You know, if if the people if the people who knew I was talking about them heard me say this, they'd probably roll over. But, <laughs> you know, we had to give up and had to accept what we didn't know. You know, we had owned this this compound for many years. It was we held it very closely. It was a very personal personal thing to bring an innovative therapy to the market. But when we went into this partnership, we knew that we were partnering with this organization because they did things better than we did. And it's hard to, you know, kind of relinquish control. So you were a small company. No, we were a large company. Okay. We were a large, but we were a specialized company. Okay. And we needed, we needed partnerships that would help broaden our reach and our exposure into primary care. So we needed someone who really understood the generalist landscape. And it was something that we hadn't played within. And there were certain subtleties to commercialization in that space that we had to accept, you know, feedback. You know, you give up a lot on process and policy. You know, there were things that my organization was very comfortable doing, but the partner organization wasn't. And so, you know, there's, there are trade-offs. And that's going to happen in, in research and development also. I, th I think it makes sense, you know, anytime any companies merge or, or there's some sort of partnership going on, there's a little bit of ego diversion that has to take place, right? Where, you know, and, and that made me think a little bit about how the the partnerships with the government might come into play. So if, you know, yep. if DARPA comes up with some new technology that can be used in, in some medical setting to then partner with them 
and have the government have to come in and say, here's what we're going to do left and right. And it's it's a much different conversation than if you are a larger you know, biotech or biopharma or pharma company that is going to a smaller one to say, hey, here's what we want to do. We know our people don't specialize that, but you do. So, but you have a little more leeway there than you might do with some of the governmental agencies. Oh, yeah. I, can't, I can't even imagine a, part, a governmental partnership. I think that's got to be ripe with challenges. I mean, if I, if I come back to this partnership, I can remember, and this is, I'll be dating myself, but Harry Potter was very popular at the time. And there was someone that I worked with that my wife finally said, you can't come home and complain about this anymore. You know, you've got to get over this. And so I started to refer to this person as Voldemort. Oh, no. said, this is the this is the person. And and you know, whether that's being a good partner, there were there were things that you just had to accept that you weren't going to win every single battle. And everybody at the heart of what we did, I know, had the patient in mind. Whether they were on the partner side or they were on our side, we were all ultimately driving to the same end. Yeah, so that trust. You know, having the you know the partnerships have to be built on some kind of trust, even though there might be competing priorities. As long as you're, you're driving towards that same goal. Well, I mean, it comes back to what you were saying about academia. Academia, it's you have to come into this with with your best foot forward and create some level of shared mission where we're both driving towards the same end. We might again, we might take different routes to get there, but collaboratively, we're going to achieve the goal that we have because there's a benefit for both. Truly, a benefit for both. But, you know, it's interesting because Todd introduced the idea of government, and, and you had a pretty adverse reaction there, Robert, to working with the government. And yet Pam, who was in his this very podcast studio a couple of weeks ago, was singing the praises of government partnership and talking about how Massachusetts, both Republican and Democrat governors, you know, this is a big priority for the state, and maybe Massachusetts is even best in class in this. So let's dive a little bit deeper into your, your government reaction here. Well, I, my government reaction was probably more aligned to any kind of bureaucracy that would be, uh, you know, kind of applied to getting clinical research done and the the mandate at the National Institute of Health or, or, or an entity like that. When you read what Pam was talking about or listen to what Pam was talking about, they're really looking to retain pharma in Massachusetts. And so there's, there is, um, there is a, a, um, a shared mission and a value in working with government to provide the most um, attractive you know, case to, to stay in the state of Massachusetts. I mean, if I think back to what Cambridge looked like 10 years ago and what it looks like today, it's fundamentally different. And you know, pharma moved from Philadelphia to Massachusetts. I mean, Philly used to be the, the kind of the hub, which it is becoming again. We're starting to see more and more um, organizations being attracted into the Philly area because of good government policies and attractive, um, att attractive uh, um, rationalization there. But again, my reaction was was really related to this development or or discovery or innovation partnership with the government. I think there could be some challenges there. I think there's a probably a big difference too, like you said, of a federal government versus a state government who might have a little bit more incentive to try to spur investment and and you know businesses to come to their state individually. So I, I've, something she had said about how there's a lot of uh, movement of you know at, once you get past the drug discovery and development piece, the manufacturing tends to get down to North Carolina or Maryland or move out. Uh, I do know sort of anecdotally, I have a friend who's an architect that specializes in building labs and, and biotech buildings and the business has been booming for the last seven or eight years. Like it's just like always a project, always going on from from Connecticut to Maine, yeah. like all up the up and down. So I think that some of those uh, Massachusetts-based government uh, projects have certainly helped 
keep things at least in the New England area. So it definitely is interesting from a- Well, it, it's, it's actually interesting as, as we dig into this a little bit further, you know, we're, we're initially talking about this from a, a revenue perspective, from a tax-based perspective, but think about what you see in the news all the time, healthcare disparities. Are there areas of the country where you have a prevalence of a disease and an underserved population? Should that state-level government be looking for partnerships in a particular disease state to bring that innovation into their state where trials can be done and therapy can be provided as part of that, that partnership agreement? I think that you know, there could be something you know, said for that if you start looking at it from a disparity perspective. But you don't think they need to move the company there, right? The government should be starting the company. Just no, the right I think company. you have to have concerted activity there. I mean, it's it should be you know instead of it's not a brick and mortar thing. It's how much of your pharma resources will you impart within this community or within this state to bring your trial data forward, to create, to manufacture, to look at a subpopulation, to 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 bring care to that group. And even partner with, you know, tax incentives to partner with academic institutions yeah. in a state that has higher disparities of, yeah. of care. So yeah. it, it starts to feel like you need to get the public and the private and the academia and the venture capitalists and the private equity and getting almost like the investors, the inventors, the government, the bureaucracy, if you have it, and the academics all kind of working together to build this ecosystem. And if any one leg kind of falls apart, the whole thing kind of tumbles. Yeah. I mean, I think it would be a, a, an interesting level of analysis to start to bring actually just a third party, bring this data back into pharma to say, did you realize that in the state of Alabama or in Northern California, there's an opportunity that aligns with your phase two pipeline and, and see if there's a reason to, to engage in that government discussion and the academic discussion, et cetera, et cetera, to build a different type of partnership. Let's pivot a little bit. And, you know, one of the things that Pam also talked about, and I'd love to get your insights on, Robert, is commercial models are evolving and changing in the life sciences. And she talked about that a lot. I know you talk to a lot of customers, a lot of different people every day. How are commercial models changing in life sciences? Oh, I think, I mean, there's so much change that's going on from a, a commercial perspective. You know, at the heart of it is is the impact that the Affordable Care Act had on our business 12 years ago and and looking at the, the the types of innovation that are coming to the market and the types of diseases that we're studying. You know, we've moved out of the Me Too world and population health and we're focused on rare disease. And I think looking at the complexity of these interventions requires a different conversation. It requires engagement in a different way. And, and you see organizations trying to understand a patient journey, but also trying to understand a care team. So if you think about how cancer care is delivered, it's not by an individual, but it's by a group. And so you have to think about an engagement model that aligns your organization to a care team so that everyone in that decision-making process has the same level of information. I think you've also seen uh, – precipitous is probably uh, you know too strong of a word, but you've seen uh, a shift in firewalls. You've seen collaboration really come back. Um, between medical and commercial organizations because they're working on a shared goal in a very rare space where the work that your medical team does drives true awareness and mitigates uncertainties and answers all of the complex questions that are associated with these new drugs so that as the commercial team has an, uh, a conversation around reimbursement and, and coverage, it makes things that much easier. I think your medical organization has become far more strategic than, than we've seen in the past. The, the start of what you were talking about in terms of uh, understanding the patient journey and the care teams, that 
you know, it, it kind of made me think about when she said everything is data in the end. And so when you think about the strategies that those commercial teams are using now, they are built around data. And so that's why, you know, she said, it's a, I forget if it was you or her who said it's a great time to be a data scientist. And that has never been true more than it is right now. And so when I think about identifying care teams and who would use that information, it really goes across the spectrum of the different pieces of the commercial team that are there and you use data analytics to pull that out, whether it's, you know, looking at, you know, genetic data or genetic testing data results to analyzing claims data to pull out the right people who are working on the right patient at the right time to then allowing that to inform you where you're going to put your phase two trial. Where are those patients that have those health disparities, A, B, who have the disease that that you're, uh, you're working your clinical trial towards, and then who has an adequate care team involved in those academic or or even if it's just a, an any other institution. So uh, it's been interesting for from my side in from a data analytic perspective on the people we talk to now versus who we talk to five to ten years ago or so. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I mean I did make a note on 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 the transcript around a good time to be a data scientist. If you come back to the 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 concept of academia is pharma making their data available to data scientists, people that have been steeped in this for years and years and years to, to do some level of analysis? I think there's an opportunity there. But yeah, I agree with you. We've seen such growth in the number of data, data analysts that we're engaging with, um, pharma big and small. And when you're thinking about, like, let's use the Novartis CAR-T therapy again, you know, they've applied at-risk contracting for this. You know, the patient has to respond or... There is no reimbursement for it. And so an organization really wants to be certain that through data and analytics, they're putting that intervention in the absolute right responding patient. And that's not a subjective choice. That's a data-driven choice. Right. And that, that's where they're using – That's it's the melding of the, the clinical data. So mining that uh, genetic testing information to build panels of the right patient that will respond exactly. to the right treatment to then – tying that back to people who actually have the disease and also got the test that matched that panel of, of comorbidities or, or genetic markers that will respond correctly. Yeah, I mean, I think companion diagnostics is such a it's such an interesting and exciting field. I mean, if you can align a successful intervention with your own genes, it's amazing. Yep. It's just amazing. Perfect combination. So, Todd, you said you're talking to different people today than you were five years ago. Who were you talking to five years ago and who are you talking to today? So uh, a long time ago, we were just talking to account execs who were managing, you know, the uh, the sales teams that were basically telling a, a pharma sales rep where to go and who to talk to. And so the the level of complexity, let's say seven years ago or whatever, was, hey, just give me a list of doctors and the you know, the percentage of the total volume they're treating uh, in their area. And great, I'm going to sort that top to bottom on an Excel sheet and I'm good to go. That's all the data I need. <laughs> and so now, you know, we're talking to those people still. Uh, they're asking much more sophisticated questions than they were seven years ago. Now it's, I don't really care about the overall volume. I want to know who they're connected to and what that care team looks like. So I can, you know, if I can't talk to that one doctor, who's connected to that doctor to be able to maybe help spread that influence over time. So those people are still in the mix asking more sophisticated questions. We're getting Medifair's teams who, while they are firewalled from certain data, they're asking ancillary questions around the data about, you know, maybe not exact volumes, but just therapeutic areas by certain people, maybe who have done speaking engagements in the past, and they're getting more details there. And they're not even just asking for volumes of, of publications. They're, they're trying to get scores. 
So how can I score people X, Y, and Z? So med device, the the actual salespeople themselves, the the account execs at home, and then we have at the home office. Excuse me, not at their homes. Oh, maybe they're working at home, and the uh, and the folks at the home office are coming up with a strategy on what to do with their drug. Maybe a, they're coming off patent. What is my strategy going to be from here? I'm going to use data analytics to try to solve that problem. It's a whole new level of sophistication. It sounds like it, on multiple levels. Yeah, for multiple groups and multiple levels. So, Robert, I want to come back. We, we've talked a lot about around, but really haven't talked about the role of the patient and the caregiver in all of this. Uh, what's your perspective? Oh, I think, well, if you look at the, the role of the patient and the caregiver today, it's fundamentally changed from a discovery and a, a drug development perspective. Their voice is represented in regulatory bodies. You see patients and caregivers actively involved at scientific societies and presenting and ensuring that pharma understands the impact. I think that there is a real demand that has been recognized for innovation. And I think, you know, patients have taken taken their own care into their own hands, caregivers taken care into their own hands. And I think the industry has to continue to recognize that this is a very strong voice and they are looking for interventions that not only address symptoms, but are addressing diseases that have really an unmet, an unmet outcome right now. So, Robert, you've, you've struck a very optimistic tone here today, and for that, I love it, right? I'm, I'm, an, I'm always a glass half full guy. Yeah, me too. Right? And so, as we're looking at where life sciences are changing, you almost seem, and you, you talked about curing cancer like 10 minutes ago, like my jaw but hit the floor. Like, that seems like one of those incurable things. Are you generally optimistic around, you know, the outlook on cures and where we're going and how different are things going to look in 10, 15 years? Oh, you know what? I, I'm opti- I'm really optimistic. And I, I, I think that I've never seen this level of innovation and partnership um, that we've seen in the last five or so years. Um, I'm not the first one to say we're going to cure cancer in your lifetime. You know, that that thought is out there. It is pervasive. And there are therapies that do cure certain kinds of cancers. You've seen life expectancies change. You've You've seen amazing improvements in therapy for tumors that before had really little hope of, of any, any, any kind of substantive um, response. I think that pharma certainly has evolved um, and, and they really are driving missions that have changed because oftentimes we were – the missions we're talking about management. We're talking about outcomes nowadays and, and you see organizations divest areas where they don't have the right expertise to focus on pipelines that they're really committed to. And and I think pharma recognizes that they've got a voice. And and it, it is my hope that uh, there's a level of trust that continues to grow. There's partnerships that continue to evolve and, and the innovation continues to, 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 to drive. I mean, there are so many other diseases out there that really have little hope. I mean, I have a, a a personal experience with Lewy body syndrome. I mean, this is a really tremendous disease. And and there are organizations working on this, working on innovations that will give people hope into the future. And I think that, you know, that that makes me positive about pharma. That's really optimistic here. It is. I, I am the the glasses in the middle type of person. I think I mean I, I take that back. I, I am optimistic about a number of different things in terms of you know the speed at which technology is changing and making things more accessible and you know, just the, the leaps and bounds we're growing at in terms of what we're learning and how to, you know, like CAR-T therapy, all the new innovations are coming out. I'm very hopeful in those sorts of things. I do think that treating the way we treat healthcare as a supply and demand problem, which we've talked about quite a bit over the course of the this podcast, but I think that while I'm all for, you know, a capitalistic society as we we sort of see it, there needs to be some adjustment in how we treat healthcare because you can't really 
price healthcare or like CAR T therapy, like it's a, a bottle of milk on a shelf, right? If there's not enough people to buy that milk, it's going to go sky high. There has to be some kind of regulatory or a regulated capitalism around healthcare, which there is to an extent that is maybe, you know, a few standard deviations above where we are right now. Uh, yeah, I don't disagree with you. And I, I, I share your sentiment. I think we, we should have greater equity in healthcare and greater access and and opportunities. And it shouldn't be a one size fits all. It should healthcare innovation should reflect the patient and reflect the patient's ability to consume that healthcare, pay for that healthcare, enjoy that healthcare. Um, and the other thing you can look at though is as pharma has continued to develop are all of the subpopulations they continue to look at. And they are addressing healthcare inequities and trying to do this and making clinical trials more inclusive to reflect uh, a more diverse uh, patient population. So there are there are elements out there that I think that are, are making their way into the the day-to-day work that pharma does. So, so that's what I'd say I'm probably optimistic about as well. In addition to the t- technology increasing and, and, and doing better, but there has been a much more concerted effort by biotech biopharma, pharma in trying to address some of those inequities that have happened over the course of the last hundred years or so. (laughs) Well, I think on that note, I like to end on a positive note, have our listeners walk away feeling good about where they are. So I think we're going to kind of stop here. Guys, thanks for taking the time to talk with me. This is really interesting. No, Thank thanks you. very much. Appreciate it. And for all our listeners out there, thanks as always for joining us on Definitively Speaking, a definitive healthcare podcast. Please join me next time with a conversation with Beth Holmes from Hint Health, a provider of technology for direct primary care. If you like what you've heard today, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about how healthcare commercial intelligence can support your business, Please follow us on Twitter at DefinitiveHC or visit us at DefinitiveHC.com. Until next time, take care, please stay healthy, and please be optimistic.